Fletcher is not sitting across from me tonight. I have Sean Nolan joining me as the co-host. Sean, how's it going, man? How are you? Doing great, doing great. So what have you been up to? Not much. Uh, just having uh, children. I'm going to have three under four soon. That's kind of my life. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's about um, to explode. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll be outnumbered uh, in October, so that'll be good. Nice, nice. Um, real quick before we get in... Um, Awesome guest joining us tonight, um, repeat guest. We'll get to that in just a second, but want to uh, throw a quick shout out to Mission Aware. Mission Aware is um, our sponsor, and uh, they have been doing a great job. Uh, Greg and I were finally able to get some swag from them, so been enjoying my these go to eleven beer mugs or beer glasses, I should say. And um, talking with Jeff over there, he has um, assured me that we are going to be. Uh, getting some other swag, um, and we will be getting um, T-shirts coming out soon as well. So go ahead, check out Mission Aware for all their great products. They got their moleskin journals, great T-shirts, um, posters, anything and everything you could need for all your reformed needs. Did you like that? Almost professional <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, we got uh, so our guest today. Really excited to have him back on, Chris Date. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and I'm just really honored that you'll you'd have me back. Thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. You know, it was it was so much fun having you on the last time, and we got um, some great questions, follow up questions for you um, this time um, as well. And so we're looking forward to diving into those. But um, Chris, what have you been up to uh, recently? You and I are Facebook friends, so I noticed you've been traveling traveling around quite a bit. Um, how's that been going? How have the conferences been going and all that stuff? It's been a real blast. Um, I'm incredibly privileged and blessed to be a part of a ministry that, uh, you know, is willing to fly me almost wherever people will have me come and speak. And as an associate member of ETS, uh, just about a week and a half ago, I uh, spoke at the Eastern Region um, ETS meeting in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I delivered a talk called Dismissive of Hell, uh, Fearful of Death, uh, Conditional Immortality and the Apologetic Challenge of Hell. Which was a lot of fun. Um, you know, some of this may actually this could come up in the in the questions that you have for me today. But one of the common objections to our view is that unbelievers aren't afraid of death and annihilation, and so they're not going to repent. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I answered that uh, charge in that in that paper, and um, that was really awesome. I had about twice as many people there as I did at the ETS conference last year, so that was cool. And then actually, just in uh, less than two weeks, next Friday, um, I don't know when this is going to be published. So I'm, I mean, next Friday from when we're recording. Mm -hmm. Uh, Friday, April 21st in um, at Gateway Seminary in uh, Ontario, California. I'll be speaking at the ETS conference there as well. Uh, and I'm going to be kind of um, laying the what – is, what is the idiom about – the, you know, laying the gauntlet down or, or whatever. I, I'm going to be giving a talk on the, at this Reformation-themed ETS conference. Uh, I'm going to be delivering a talk called Semper Reformanda Curnanet in Furnum, mm. which means, uh, you know, always reforming, why not also hell? And the mm. subtitle is The Protestant Abandonment of Sola Scriptura in Defense of Eternal Torment. So <laughs> I'm going to be arguing that uh, Protestants uh, and evangelicals are abandoning the historic doctrine of Sola Scriptura when it comes to defending eternal torment. And um, I've noticed from the list of people that are going to also be speaking there that it's going to be kind of like being Daniel in the lion's den. So it should be, <laughs> uh, it should be, it should be a really good conference, and I'm looking forward to getting some pushback. But anyway, yeah, it, it's been it's been great. You know, there there are certainly people that are. Uh, uh, 
opposed to this view very um, very rigidly and very fervently. Uh, but there are a great number of people as well, an increasing number, I would say, that are open mm. to it, and they may not agree with it, but they they respect why a, a evangelical committed to the authority of Scripture like myself might uh, might hold to this uh, this view. Uh, and I'm grateful for the kinds of receptions that I typically get when I go around. So it, mm. it's a blast. Rethinking Hell is a great ministry, and I'm I'm, an, I'm honored to be a part of it. I, I love that title for the the one you're doing in the West Coast, just because you may recall from our last conversation, a seminary prof that I mentioned your view to who um, once uh, told me we, we could not use the Didache for baptismal practices and um, because it wasn't scripture, but he quickly appealed to a Baptist confession and not scripture when dismissing your view. So, um, <laughs> so I, I just like that title. So um, that's all. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad to, uh, I'm glad to hopefully get some people to, uh, my hope is that 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 topic that title will rile people up and they'll get angry and want to come and listen so they can um, shout me down afterwards. Uh, so anyway, ho- uh, anyway, hopefully it'll go well. Excellent. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, Sean and I were um, talking before we we dialed up with you, Chris, and you know, one of the things that we were saying is, um, you know, uh, agree or disagree with the view, you know, makes no difference, but you know people attacking you as a heretic. I just, I, I really don't see it, you know, in the sense that to me, there's really only, you know, one person that we should be calling heretical. And that's the person who does not preach uh, Jesus Christ crucified and our savior. And to me, all these other issues that kind of fall under, it's like, well, they haven't happened yet. So isn't there a sense that we can, you know, read the Bible, interpret the Bible and speculate on some of these things and still have, you know, the grace to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is a brother in Christ, um, who we may or may not disagree with, but he's looking at the scripture, same as us and just coming to a different conclusion. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, I agree. The only nuance I'd add to that is I do think there is more, to the core, you know, essentials of the faith than merely preaching Christ crucified. I think that, um, you know, some people mistake what we at Rethinking Hell are doing. Uh, they mistake it for calling for a, a, a broadening, a widening of the tent so big that anybody who professes any mildly sounding Christian faith should be considered evangelical and Christian, mm. but that's not what we're doing. We think that there are indeed some essentials of the faith, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the dual nature of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, uh, both of Jesus and of the saved and the lost in the future and salvation by faith, which if deviated from is in fact grounds for uh, for for um, – separation, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for disfellowship. There are those core essentials, which if denied, I don't even understand how it could properly be called a Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Our argument, however, is that none of those essentials are denied uh, by conditionalists like myself, uh, and even by some universalists, not all of them, uh, but, but right. even by some of them. And so, um, you know, sure. our, our we just want Christians to, uh, you know, there's that famous saying mistakenly attributed to Augustine uh, in the essentials unity, in the non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. And and, then we feel really strongly about that. We just don't think that this topic of hell is one of the essentials. Mm. I'd agree. I, it's, um, yeah, I mean, the things that you just outlined, the deity of Christ and his dual nature are kind of the things that were settled in the first four centuries of church church history through a lot of the, um, councils that established different creeds. But, um, but yeah, that's funny to hear you say that. I I actually just uh, completed most of the parts in in the most recent uh, four views on hell, and kind of decided to skip over the universalist and the purgatory perspectives just because <laughs> I didn't. I'm, I'm pretty confirmed in 
and stand pretty firm on my convictions that I'm not going to be swayed into those positions. <laughs> but um, but I did I did like Stackhouse's argument in terms of uh, conditionalism. So yeah, and Denny Burks was um, uh, <laughs> left something to be desired. Let's just put it that way in terms of uh, defense for the traditional view. Um, and yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I, I don't see myself ever being persuaded by universalism either. All I'm saying is that there's a difference between those universalists who uh, who who are outright pluralists who think right. that it doesn't matter what you believe, everybody's going to go to heaven in the end. There's a difference between them. And what one might call evangelical universalists like Robin Perry, who think that, no, salvation is only through faith in Christ. It just happens to be that faith in Christ is something that continue to, can continue to be exercised beyond the grave mm-hmm. and that everyone eventually will. Now, I don't think there's a lick of evidence in, in support of that in Scripture, but I also cannot – I cannot identify any essentials of the faith that are violated by that view. And that's why mm. I just I would like to see some universalists um, treated as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and not dismissed as heretics. That's mm. all. Fair point. Nice. Um, so just going ahead, um, you know, we're just going to start things off here. Um, first question that we have, um, does it cause you any concern that your position on hell has not been embraced by the majority in historic Christendom? Yes, it does. Um, as as uh, Albert Moeller said when I debated him on Unbelievable with Justin Brierley on Premier Christian Radio, we conditionalists are making a very audacious claim when we say that for much of church history, the dominant Christian view about this uh, issue has been wrong. Um, and in fact, I, I'm a big fan of uh, – or I was a big fan of a ministry that is no longer around called the Preterist Podcast in which uh, my friend Dee Dee Warren used to often say theological novelty is not a good thing, um, which is just a way of saying that if you think you suddenly happened upon some truth that few, if any, Christians have stumbled upon in the past 2,000 years, chances are you're the one that's wrong, not them. Mm, and I if, I had, if I had never uh, found – church fathers in the first few centuries of the church, respected ones who clearly teach my view, I would be I would be much more concerned than I am. But the thing is, is as a Protestant, I'm already a child of the Reformation, which I see as very little different from what we conditionalists are suggesting. You know, we're just like the Reformation was saying, we need to return to views that were prominent in scripture and in the early church but which have which faded into obscurity until the Reformation. Likewise, we conditionalists are saying that this view was taught by the authors of Scripture and it was prominent in the early church, but it fell into obscurity and it's just now um, you know, coming back to light. I understand that's an audacious claim, but it's not as if we're it's not as if we're saying that we've stumbled upon something that few Christians uh, ever have before. No, this was I would argue that this view was the dominant view of the early church for the first couple of centuries. Uh, and I'm happy to defend that claim if pressed. Mm. Great. I think that's a, I think that sums up pretty well, a, a good reason to, to at least entertain that idea. Um, kind of circling back actually, cause uh, I thought of this and I think it's a good time when, when you mentioned what you presented on the East coast here in Lancaster, uh, at ETS, just the charge that, um, the apologetic is weakened when you say um, you'll be annihilated after death, that we lose our, our ground trying to bring the good news to unbelievers. How did you answer that? I just think that's a good kind of a good tie in there in terms of the, the fear that some may have of, of entertaining the conditionalist view. 
Yeah, that's a great question, and I will answer that. But just to let your listeners know, um, the uh, an audio recording of my presentation is available. I'll give you guys a link that you can include in your show notes. Uh, it, right now, ETS is selling it for $4 along with all of the, uh, they also sell all the other breakout sessions for $4. Although I've been given permission to publish our, the audio recording for free. And so at some point in the not too distant future, uh, it'll be an episode of the Rethinking Hell podcast. And if anybody just wants to shoot me an email at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com, uh, I'd be happy to send them my paper um, and an audio recording of it if they'd like. Okay. So, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to summarize my argument here, but the fuller treatment is available for anybody who wants it. I, I basically offered uh, three points in response to that argument. First of all, the tradi- the, the, the argument is, is a double edged sword, because if, if it was ever true that the doctrine of eternal torment spurred unbelievers and mass to repent, that is not true anymore. Uh, in today's pluralistic culture, many, uh, if not most, atheists find the doctrine of eternal torment to be to be a reason to reject Christianity as being uh, absurd and inconsistent and ridiculous. Um, some of the, you know, three of the four uh, notorious, you know, horsemen of the new atheism, and I, I quote in my paper, uh, attribute part of, you know, part of the reason for rejecting Christianity to the, the, its doctrine of uh, eternal torment. Mm. Uh, meanwhile. Um, as atheist Ed Atkinson and uh, atheist Andrew White and others that have been interviewed on Unbelievable and which I've interviewed uh, all say that the doctrine of conditional immortality neutralizes that particular one of their objections. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that they're going to suddenly repent and that all of their answers have been – all their questions have been answered. It just means that the doctrine of conditional immortality, even if it does take some of the wind out of the proverbial sails of the Great Commission by not being as fearful – at the same time, removes a barrier, an obstacle, preventing some atheists from coming to faith in the first place. So mm. at the very best, it's a wash. It's no better and no worse in terms of evangelism than the traditional view. Uh, but that's just the first point that I offered in my response. The second point was that uh, the the um, consistent and universal human experience is that, in fact, human beings are deathly afraid of death, mm. uh, excuse the pun. Mm. Um, the author of Hebrews testifies it. He says in uh, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, that Jesus partook of flesh and blood that through death. He might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Mm-hmm. And in my paper, I quote a number of people both in the first century and, and as well as people, humanists and atheists now, who very specifically describe their fear of death as one of fear of annihilation. Their mm-hmm. fear isn't of the unknown. It's not of um, what might happen after death. Their fear is no longer being. Mm. Um, and, and in fact, as a child, I was terrified of that as well before I became a Christian. Um, and so mm. the idea that human beings don't fear death and annihilation simply flies in the face of all common human experience. I mean, that's what the whole premise of the Saw series of movies is is based on, <laughs> is that as human beings, we're so afraid of death that if presented with the option to uh, res- uh, um, escape death by doing something horrific, many of us would be tempted to do it. Mm. Um so that's my second response. And then and my third response or my third point in my response to this argument is that um, conditional immortality uh, reflects and resonates with human beings' innate desire to achieve immortality. And you can see that uh, that desire that human beings have to achieve immortality in what you see in transhumanist um, uh, their, their search for immortality through technology. And so you've got, for example, um, 
people going into cryogenic freezing so that one day they can be unfrozen at a time when people are able to live for long periods of time or forever. There are uh, technologies being explored for transferring consciousness from a human body to a machine so that humans can live on in some other kind of artificial body. Uh, mm. And, and it's, these are just some examples of, of that illustrate that human beings are striving and searching for immortality, which is what we conditionalists think the Bible offers. But if, on the other hand, everybody's going to achieve immortality, it's just a matter of real estate, you know, whether you're in a happy place or a sad place, um, then life and immortality loses some of its preciousness, loses some of its um, of its giftedness. Uh, and so that's basically it. Number one, if it if it dulls the the um, if it's less fearful, it also removes one of the objections to to faith. Mm. Number two, people are in fact afraid of death and annihilation. And number three, people are desperately searching for immortality. Um, and all of that, you know, resonates with um, or with people when we present the gospel from a conditionalist perspective, and is lost when you resonate or when when you present the gospel from a traditionalist perspective. And so, I don't think the argument holds any water. And I think that if evangelists and apologists offered what I think is the biblical view of hell as the um, fate to 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 escape by coming to faith i think it will actually have a net positive benefit on evangelism not a net negative one but all of that having been said and i'll wrap this up now i don't think that this is a reason to believe in conditional immortality i'm not making here a positive case for conditionalism i'm simply trying to rebut uh whether successful or not i'll leave up to you Mm. um i'm trying to rebut an argument against our view and and i do think it does so uh successfully very wow. good, um, Chris. Could you could you go back um, to the um, point about um, you know this being uh, popular in historic Christendom and just talk about some of those um, early church fathers who who held this view and um, you know I, I would assume this is part of the reason why you've come to accept this is not only through you know the biblical accounts which should be our ultimate goal reading the Bible seeing what it says and and coming to our opinions um, based on that but also you know reading um, throughout church history those people who have come before who have who have thought and believed these things as well could you could you talk about some of those a little bit so you're asking for examples of early church uh, early christians who held yeah. this view yeah yes so so basically prior to the time of augustine and even for shortly thereafter um you, you find all three major views of hell represented. Um, you see eternal torment first taught by Tertullian in the second century and then popularized by Augustine. Um, but but before and after Augustine, you have universalists and you have conditionalists as well. Um, the earliest writings by people like Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch and, and Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, when, whenever they so, – so what what happens is they typically just simply regurgitate biblical language. They just quote phrases like eternal punishment and eternal fire. And of course, because believers in eternal torment think that those phrases teach their view, then when they see those phrases in the fathers, they're like, see, they taught our view. Well, no, wait. The question is what do those phrases mean? And just appealing to the church fathers' uses of, uses of those phrase, phrases – doesn't answer the doesn't answer the debate, but when you look at how those fathers, uh, what they say when they use their own language, when they craft language of their own making, you have people like Ignatius of Ignatius of Antioch saying that Christ came to breathe immortality into his church. Well, he even calls – I think he calls uh, Jesus, the bread from heaven, the medicine of immortality. Um, you know, the, the clear implication there is that immortality is not – uh, inherent, not innate, not not something that is universal, but is something that Christ gave, came to give to His people. 
Um, you have Clement of Rome, who, if I'm recalling correctly, said, if God were to reward us for, for our works, we would cease to be. Uh, we have Irenaeus of Lyon, who said that um, who said that God grants, in the same way that God keeps the sun and the moon and the stars in existence for eons and eons and eons, and has the power to do so, he likewise has the power to grant life and existence uh, for for um, you know no end of days to the saved, but that the lost deprive themselves of life and continuance and length of days forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and he's not talking about there about some sort of quality of life. He's talking about life itself, existence itself. So when, when and then you have people after Augustine like uh, Arnobius of Sicca, who although questionable in some areas, nevertheless, was a respected church father, is thought of as such by Catholic and Orthodox uh, branches of Christianity, if you can call them branches of Christianity, <laughs> um, which I don't. But uh, you, um, they, they were respected teachers. They had followings. And, and, you know, when you have a church father in the first centuries of the church, um, they didn't exist in isolation. They existed in communities who respected them and who agreed with them on topics. And so both prior to Augustine and after, you have um, you have respected church fathers and com- the communities that follow them uh, believing in this view. But when Augustine puts his stamp of approval on the doctrine taught by Tertullian earlier, uh, the doctrine of eternal torment, his understandably and, and deserved um, influence caused alternatives to the doctrine of eternal torment uh, to fade into, you know, minuscule uh, percentages of the church, and you don't find um, hardly any conditionalists or or universalists between then and the Re- and the Reformation. Um, but but you do have those three views represented in the early church. And what's interesting is that um, despite the diversity of views that existed prior to and following Augustine, you don't see any uh, church councils, any um, you know, none of the ecumenical councils, none of the creeds, none of these things codify the doctrine of eternal torment as one of the essentials of the faith. The closest thing you have is the what I think was the Lateran Council, uh, Lateral Council of Constantinople in like the fifth century, where arguably, and it is only arguably, they condemned the universalism, uh, universalism of origin or organ, however you pronounce his name. Um, but but they didn't condemn annihilationism. Conditionalism was not condemned until like the 12th century by the Catholic Church. So somehow, despite the diversity that existed amongst uh, the church fathers, th- th- there was no codifying of eternal torment as official Christian doctrine. It just happened to become that because of the weight of, of Augustine. And um, you know, I, I don't think that there's any reason to, given what we know from the Reformation, I don't think there's any reason to think that it's not possible that the alternatives to traditional uh, to the traditional view might deserve uh, some more attention now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, mm. yeah. Really well put. Really well put. Sean, did you have any um, follow-up questions or anything from that? Um, I mean, I mean, it's really. We really should never question Augustine, particularly because like his views on baptism were so solidified, and he never changed on anything like that. So obviously, <laughs> we should apply the same to his view on hell. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have anything to say other than that. I think that's a, a, a well summarized. <laughs> Mike, drop. By the way, even even Athanasius the Great, I would argue, was probably a conditionalist. In his in his, mm. um, I mean, we're, we're talking about wasn't it Athanasius who, who it was Athanasius against the world? Wasn't he the one that was Contra defending? Mundo. Yeah, you're That's right. That's right. 
That's right. And in his in his uh, work on the incarnation of the Word, he argues mm. that because of sin, man was sinking back into the oblivion whence he came, and that Christ came so that man would not, you know, would not return to non-existence. Mm. Now that only leaves you with two possibilities. It seems to me, uh, if, if you follow the logic of his argument in, on the incarnation of the word, either he was a universalist or he was a conditionalist. Mm. I don't think that there's any good reason to think that even Athanasius the Great uh, was a believer in the doctrine of eternal torment. Hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. I so definitely good. agree he was great, but um, that's really that's a really good – where did you say that was? That was in the, the work he did while he was like in his young 20s when he wrote that, I think, right? I don't know when Athanasius wrote that work. It's you said the one on the incarnation, right? Yeah, on the incarnation of the Word. Mm, mm, I'll have to look into that. Very cool. Um, so the next question we have here: um, How can hell be the appropriate judgment if it is not eternal? Since the crime of rejecting God and His Son is an eternal crime, as I have always seen it. In other words, shouldn't denying the eternal God lead to eternal misery? So I, I have a twofold answer to that. Number one, even if that logic, uh, you know, were valid, the doctrine of conditional immortality suggests that the punishment is in fact eternal. Um, as we talked about last time, you know, in part one of, you know, when we recorded last year, mm-hmm. um, we're not saying that the punishment isn't eternal. We're saying it is eternal. It's just we're disputing the nature of that punishment. Uh, traditionalists, the, the believers in eternal torment, they think that that punishment is torment. And if it's an eternal punishment, as Jesus clearly says that it is in Matthew 25, 46, well, then that torment must go on for eternity. But if, on the other hand, as the Bible teaches in Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death, if, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, that the wicked will pay the penalty of everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, if, as Jesus is, or if, as John says in John three sixteen that uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, well, then the nature of the punishment is death. And if that death lasts forever, if the wicked will be killed and will never, ever, ever, ever live again, then the punishment is, properly speaking, everlasting. So if the punishment is everlasting, then it's by definition an eternal and and, and, and um, an infinite punishment. And so even if a sin against an infinitely holy God, as the argument goes, deserves uh, an eternal punishment, then annihilation qualifies. Okay. Mm-hmm. But all of that having been said, I think it's legitimate to to push back on the argument because um, God's attributes are not measurable in terms of quantity. God does not have an infinite number of units of holiness, right? God, mm. the, the the more accurate way to put it would be that God is perfectly holy. Mm. There, you know, a circle, for example, is not infinitely round, right? Mm. Uh, it's perfectly round, and um, and in the same way, God is perfectly holy. And so, yes, a sin against Him, arguably, you know, deserves a, a, a perfect punishment, but it doesn't follow that it that it requires an everlasting one. Uh, and so I'm not even convinced that the logic uh, is valid in the first place. But as I said, even if the logic is valid um, – and by the way, from my, my understanding is that you don't see that argument offered until Anselm, something like you know, somewhere in, in what, the early, the early second millennium. Um, mm-hmm. Prior to Anselm, I don't think you, you see this argument being offered. Uh, so talk about theological novelty – you know, this the, the this argument apparently didn't occur to Christians for you know twelve hundred years or something. That mm. that strikes me as a little bit unlikely. But even if the argument is valid, annihilation qualifies. Mm. Excellent, excellent. I uh, 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think that that analogy holds up well. I mean, a lot of analogies start to break apart when we try to apply them to an infinite God, but um, you're saying that it's eternal in the sense of being irreversible, which has... Well, hold on. I'm, I'm not... Oh, just ahead. to be clear, this is a common misconception. I'm not saying that um, that death is eternal in as far in so much as it is irreversible. In other words, I'm not saying that eternal means irreversible. I'm saying that the nature of the punishment is not in the being killed. It's in the result of having life deprived. Uh, even Augustine said this in City of God. He said that uh, civilizations you know, around the world, they don't measure the duration of, punish- of capital punishment in how long it takes to die. Mm. I mean, after all, if, if that were how the duration of capital punishment were measured, then lethal injection would be a far less severe punishment than 10 years in prison. Hmm. Okay, and yet we all instinctively know that lethal injection is a far more serious punishment than than even life in prison, arguably. Mm. But at the very least, it's certainly more severe than 50 years in prison. Um, so the punishment, as Augustine noticed, uh, no, uh, noted, the duration of capital punishment is measured in the the amount of time that one has one's life deprived from one. Mm. So if, if that capital punishment deprives you of life forever, then the punishment itself, that is the the privation of life that results from being killed. That lasts forever. It is, properly speaking, an eternal punishment. It's not merely irreversible. It is, properly speaking, everlasting. It's just that the punishment does not consist of what of being killed. It consists of having life deprived from you forever. Mm, wow. Well, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> well, if that helps. I don't know if it does. <laughs> but. No, no. I think, I think it's very helpful. I mean, that's where we, we mentioned briefly earlier Denny Burke's argument in uh, – in four views in hell. And that's kind of, he, he uses that analogy to, he tries to stretch that pretty far, but I found it ultimately uncompelling. Sure. The, the eternal, uh, God requires a eternal suffering, I guess was his analogy. Um, is that, is that like the same when I was a a kid and I would do something really bad? My mom would say, I gave you life and I could take it away from you. Is is that, is that kind of the same, the same logic there? No, no. (laughs) Is that something different? I think, I think the, I think the analogy that, um, Sean is, is referring to in Denny Burke's <laughs> argument is the, um, you know, I, I think it was something like if you are uh, torturing a cricket or something like that, it's not right. nearly as bad as if you're torturing a dog. And that's not nearly as bad as if you're torturing a human being or something like that. And so the 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 one you're sinning against, uh, the, you know, to, to one extent or another determines the severity of the crime. And I think there's a certain amount of validity to that. But again, God sure. isn't infinitely holy he's perfectly holy and 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 even if that logic did hold i i just don't think annihilation fails to qualify right yeah i i I, that is the argument he he has thanks for um clarifying it wasn't completely fresh in my mind but yeah i think he he says a baby but but yeah i think you're i think you're right in the sense for for just drawing attention to that we don't think god has infinite units of holiness that (laughs) he's he's inseparable all of his attributes are are all one and whole and Mm -hmm. And perfect, yeah. So it's not, it's not a, a number of quantity as much as it's quality. I think in that regard. So, yeah. Um, speaking of Anselm, should I go into that? Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that we didn't see that come up until Anselm, and this is a, a question submitted by someone. It looks like they're probably sympathetic to you, but they were just. It looks like they are curious as to whether um, Anselm's uh, ontological argument. Uh, could actually be used to kind of bolster the conditionalist argument. In other words, 
if, if existing is greater than not existing, couldn't that be used as a conditionalist as almost an apologetic since not existing by being only having conditional immortality is a, is a good apologetic to use when speaking to unbelievers? I very possibly. I mean, I, I think it's, I, I have often said that I, and, and this makes me a little bit of an enigma, I'll admit it, but I have, I, as I explained to you guys last time I recorded, I was not and am not drawn to conditionalism because I think that it's a, um, it, it paints a more merciful view of God or, or that the punishment is more palatable or you know, anything like that. It was, it was for, it was for exegetical reasons. And as such, mm. I think this might be an interesting argument, but it's not one that I personally would use. That having been said, I have often said I think that uh, the ceasing to be is actually a more severe punishment um, than being kept alive forever in torment. For example, one of one of the first debates I did was with a guy named Joshua Whips, uh, who goes by the uh, pseudonym Razor's Kiss online, and I asked him <laughs> during I I I, I during cross examination um, at one point I asked him, would you agree that hell that in hell um the the lost are deprived of all good things every, everything that's good and he said yes and then in the second round of cross examination i asked him again i said i just want to make sure you affirm this would you agree that uh you know that the lost are deprived of all things that are good in hell and he agreed and i said is is life a good thing mm. and he said yes and he didn't get mm. <laughs> he didn't get what i was trying to say because because <laughs> the doctrine of hell isn't um disembodied souls in 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 uh in in Hades forever it's physically resurrected immortal bodies suffering forever in hell so these the wicked according to the traditional view do have life physical life mm. and and as christians you know we we fight against we fight for the sanctity of the of the life of the unborn right. um, we fight against, or at least many of us fight against euthanasia because we think that life is uh, in and of itself a good thing mm. so if the lost are deprived even of that so they don't even have life. They don't even have being. Um, that seems to me like a more severe penalty. Um, now, <laughs> does that mean then that atheists are going to find annihilation even more objectionable than eternal torment? Well, no, I don't think so because they're uh, mm. because for some reason, as as fearful as that is, and as I I mean I demonstrate as much in my paper at ETS a, a couple of weeks ago, as fearful as annihilation is, and as um, objectionable as the doctrine of eternal torment is to them, uh, nevertheless, the thought of being immortalized so they can experience torment forever. Uh, is something that they much more seriously object to than ceasing to be. Uh, and I don't hmm. know, maybe it's because annihilation is both a, um, you know, it's both very severe and that you have life um, withheld from you, but at the same time, it's also uh, less, um, I don't know, less, less capricious, less, less, uh, uh, th there's, there's something less objectionable about the fact that you're not being kept alive so you can experience torment forever. Mm. I don't know why it is, but yes, I think that uh, unbelievers who find the ontological argument compelling might also see that as reason for thinking that annihilation is in fact a fate to be feared. Mm. All of that having been said, I don't even think it's necessary for unbelievers because like I said, they already fear death mm. and they already fear annihilation. Um, mm. You don't need to convince unbelievers. I mean, Woody Allen famously said, I don't want to uh, live forever through my work. I want to live forever in my apartment. Mm. 
Mm, you know, yeah. <laughs> we, we yeah. already fear death. We don't need to use the ontological argument to convince unbelievers that they fear death. Is the I guess heart, what I'm saying. The heart wants what the heart wants, Chris. So if, <laughs> if he wants to live forever, um, <laughs> we can offer that to him. I, I think. That, well, that sounds right. Exactly. I, I think that's. Um, I think that's a good point because. Uh, I, I mean, I was an atheist until I was 19, and that it is funny. As as much as that's a faith commitment, that was a big fear of mine. Was I didn't want to. I didn't love the idea of ceasing to exist, but they already believed that, so it's one less thing you have to convince them of. Right. I mean, when you're when you're presenting Christ to them, you can get just kind of say, "Well, yeah, it's a given. You're you're going to cease to exist." But do you want that? I mean, if would you accept the alternative if it was offered to you, and that's what Christ offers? So you don't have to get them to to have a different view of um, the afterlife for unbelievers, because that's what you're kind of presenting already anyway. Um, Amen. And and I think you're resonating with you're tapping into. Both an inherent to human nature stick and carrot, right? Mm. You're you're tapping into both the stick that is death, uh, and the carrot that is life. We we desperately mm. fear death. We desperately long for life. And conditionalism um, says you can escape the the stick and receive the carrot by turning uh, in faith to Christ. I think that's a pretty awesome apologetic and a pretty awesome um, tool for evangelism. Mm. So Chris, let me, um, let me ask you this question. What would you, how would you address someone who, um, who's an atheist who has kind of resigned themselves to the fact that, you know, at the end of it, there's just, there's nothing that they've just come to the conclusion that, you know, this is what it is. They've almost kind of made their, made their peace with it, so to speak, because, um, many of the atheists that I, that I, um, have heard speak on, you know, the subject of the afterlife. It's, it's almost like they say it with a resounding settlement or a resounding peace. It's like, yeah, that's just, that's the way it is. So be it, you know? Um, I mean, how, how would you, how would you address someone like that? Do you kind of put it in the same category as, you know, the Bible saying that, you know, only a fool says in their heart that there is no God because ultimately the truth of God is imprinted there somewhere. It's just a total denial of, of the reality of it. Your thoughts on that? I think that's an interesting question, and I don't know that I have a good answer at this point. Um, my thinking is, you know, Roman in Romans one, uh, especially, especially as Reformed believers, we recognize that uh, Paul is saying that unbelievers may claim not to know God, but they do. They know mm-hmm. He exists, mm-hmm. and in the same way, the author of Hebrews says that human beings fear death. And so, even if an unbeliever says he doesn't, um, we know they really do. Uh, but I'm not sure that arguing against the, you know, are, are telling them, no, you really do fear death. I don't know that that's going to get them, get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I don't think we really need to, because if they really do fear death, then I think that we can offer the gift. We, we can tell them that in Christ is to be found the offer of life. Um, that will resonate with them, even if they don't admit it. And even if we can't get them to, uh, you know, acknowledge that that resonates with them. Um, and so I think that in apologetics to those kinds of atheists, I think that we're just going to need to, um, uh, go about apologetics the way that we normally do. I mean, look, if, if you went to that kind of atheist and and told them, you know, Hey, if you don't turn to Christ, you're going to suffer forever in hell. They're going to laugh at you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, that's not going to cause them to repent. I mean, after all, this is one of the other things I point out in my paper. In order for an atheist to repent for fear of living forever in torment, they've got to believe it's plausible that they might live forever in torment. Mm-hmm. But the kind of atheist you're describing already knows he's not going to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to appeal to that isn't going to help anyway. I think we're just going to need to um, uh, 
convince that we're going to need to go about apologetics the way that we normally do, um, getting them to see the rationality of Christian faith, and in so doing, at the same time, explain that that if there is a part of them that does in fact fear death, because we know there is, um, then then the gift of life is available to them if they turn in turn to faith in Christ, turn in faith to Christ, and that it's a very rational thing to do. Um, I don't know that even with unbelievers that admit to fearing death, I don't know that the best way to go about evangelism to them is to tell them, hey, you know, um, if you don't do this, you're going to die forever. Well, how, let me ask you this. When you look at the apologetics done by, I mean, the evangelism done by the early church in the book of Acts, do you see them uh, warning unbelievers of living forever in hell or even doing much in terms of warning unbelievers about dying? I don't see that, which is just to say, um, at least, very, at least, very. I don't see it much. And so, I guess the point I'm getting at is, regardless of what one's view of hell is, I'm not sure that warning them about it and trying to tell them that they ought to fear it. I don't think that's the best way to go about apologetics and evangelism in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I, I yeah. don't have a good answer to that question, but those are my thoughts. Yeah. No, those. I mean, I think those are really um, some great thoughts there. So, thank you for taking the time to explore that a little bit. Um, so, the next question that we have here, Sean, I'm going to um, bump it over to you. Um, the one about Satan. Sure. So, so, uh, this is from a listener too, right? Yeah. So a listener says, is it possible that Satan and his minions might suffer any less, wait, does that say suffer less conscious punishment as a greater crime because of their greater evil? Does that, does it mean more? I don't know. Dutcher sent these questions to us, so we're, we're going to blame him. <laughs> Will they suffer less because they've they've sinned more? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that makes sense. Um, is, is that maybe why Revelation says the smoke of their torment will rise up forever and ever? Oh. Well, it, it doesn't say that the smoke of the torment of the devil and his angels rises forever. It says that the smoke of the torment of the beast worshippers people who worship the beast rises forever and ever. And I think we might have addressed that last time we recorded, but I'll just remind listeners that this that this picture of smoke rising forever is used both in the Old and New Testaments to refer to complete – it's a symbol kind of like what we think of when we see a mushroom cloud. It's a symbol of annihilation, of obliteration. Mm. Um, Isaiah 34.10, smoke rises forever from the burning city of Edom, and no traditionalist thinks that smoke is going to belch forth from the city of Edom for eternity. Right. Um, even in Revelation itself, in chapters in 18 and 19, uh, the harlot, Mystery Babylon, is tormented in fire and smoke rises forever from her, but the angel interprets it as image. Uh, communi communicating the destruction of the city that that harlot represents. So, mm. smoke rising forever from torment just doesn't uh, doesn't lend itself to the traditional case. It, it offers itself to to our view. As for the devil and his angels, that's what I really was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely sure I know where your questioner is going, but what I will say is the the community of conditionalists is mixed okay. on that topic. There there are uh, some, I would probably say, a minority of conditionalists who think that the devil and his angels will in fact be tormented forever, even though mankind will be annihilated. Um, and they would probably appeal to Revelation 2010 as evidence and support for that. I am mm. not persuaded of that um, for a variety of reasons, um, not the least of which is that the biblical portrayal of eternity is not one in which mm. sin and evil and wickedness are, are cordoned off in some dark, gloomy corner of the cosmos. It's mm -hmm. it's a picture in which the entire universe has been brought under the headship of of Christ, and and in which everything is all in all, and um and 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 His creation is restored to perfection, perfection and beauty. Mm. Uh, that's one of many reasons why I don't 
agree with those conditionalists who think that they will be tormented forever. But there are those that mm. do think that. And so I would if, – if your questioner is concerned that the devil and his angels are getting off easy or something like that by being mm. annihilated, well, he can explore the view of those conditionalists who think that the devil and his angels will, will be tormented forever. Mm. Yeah. Great. So the the last one we have here. Um, oh, that's it. Yeah, the, <laughs> that's it. We've been we've been rolling for uh, close to forty minutes here. We, we've been no. no I mean, I, I expected more. I expected more challenges and questions, uh, but that's right. I, I don't. Uh, do you have anything, Sean? You've put a lot of hard work in, Chris. Apparently, the the world is becoming uh, <laughs> is, is becoming immune from uh, the controversy of your views. <laughs> Well, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. So. <laughs> Chris, can I just say one of the things that I really appreciate about you having you on is that you are um, – you're, you're humble first of off, which is great because um, you know we have some um, people who, who will try to articulate views um, that can come across sounding rather um, D-bag-ish and you don't, <laughs> you don't do that at all. You, you're, just, you're very humble in your view and the fact that you know, this is what you believe but you're also very articulate and you have thought a lot of these things through. So I think mm. the lack of questions questions from Sean and myself as follow-ups are just coming from the fact that I, I, I truly believe that we think you're doing a great job at just with the follow-up and explaining on your own. Um, so we really just do appreciate that a lot. Well, that's very kind. Uh, I, apparently I put on a good, um, a good show of being humble. <laughs> I'm not sure that I actually am, but I try. <laughs> It's funny we can't say that we're humble. The moment you do, you're not. So right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crash and burn. Um, so on this one, uh, and maybe we'll have a little bit more to go on this one. Um, if eternal consciousness, never-ending existence, is not the default destination of the human condition, then are you saying that God gives miraculous post-mortem life to the unbeliever just long enough to then kill him again? Why not just let the person die at his natural death? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a common objection to our view. It, uh, you know, the objection goes something like, "Why raise the dead only to destroy them again?" Um, and I think there are a variety of possible answers to that. Not the least of which is that it appears to be what Scripture clearly teaches. Um, but, but here, here's one possible answer among several to, to why it is that God might choose to do that. Um, the Old Testament says. Uh, in a number of places, and you see, I think, uh, elements of this in the New Testament as well, that the um, th that the lost, or sorry, that the wicked, the unrighteous, are going to um, be uh, killed violently, and they're going to um, they're going to be held in shame and in contempt, and they're going to be ashamed of what they've done. And um, you know, in, in other words, uh, the 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 death of the lost is painted in pretty dire terms. But what you see in life is, in fact, many or most wicked people um, die at, in peace. They, you know, they, they, maybe they die in their sleep. Uh, many wicked people die in the lap of luxury with lots of friends around them who think that they're the cat's pajamas. Um, <laughs> pl plenty, of, plenty of wicked people do not experience divine justice on this side of life, even though they die. Mm. And it's conceivable that one of the reasons that God raises the dead is so that they can be, um, uh, so that they can be, they can be made to face the reality that they've uh, sinned against and rejected God, uh, and that they've sinned against God's people, and they can be, um, and so they can, they will be made to feel ashamed of what they've done. They will be made to realize uh, what it is that they're missing out on, and then experience the shameful, violent death 
that Scripture promises them uh, and will be forever held in contempt by God and his people, as Daniel 12.2 seems to indicate. Uh, so, you know, part of it has, I think, to do with receiving justice, uh, which is not something – I mean, look, if it's a punishment – Oftentimes, my view is objected against, uh, objected to on the grounds that you can't be punished unless you're conscious. Okay. Now, I happen to think that there's an element of truth to that. Uh, I don't. The reason I think annihilation qualifies is because the dead are are raised so they can consciously uh, be made aware that they've they've violated the law of God and are held guilty and are going to be killed for it. Um, and so it's, it's a punishment. And then they're, they're the, the, the result of being killed of, you know, having their life deprived that lasts forever. And so it's an eternal punishment. But, um, but if they died in the lap of luxury and peace and, and everyone thought that they were great and then that was it, how could you say they were punished? Hmm. They didn't, they were never made aware of their crime. They were never made aware of the justice that they were, uh, that was being dealt upon them. And so I think that it's possible that one reason God does it is so that they can be held accountable for what they've done and, and, and own up to that and face up to it. But there's another possible answer. Um, there's a, you know, I asked when I was still exploring this view and not yet convinced of it. And I was interviewing Edward Fudge. I asked him the same question mm. and he offered, uh, he, he, he turned the question to me and he said, if somebody is stabbed in prison, and and dies in a prison cell doesn't the you know why why will the staff mm. enlist medical professionals to come and resuscitate this criminal who's on death row even though that criminal is on his way to being tried and and convicted and killed mm. you know for for his murders mm. and the reason is because that we we have this sense i think that uh you deserve a fair trial Right. And yeah. if you're if you're in prison being uh, awaiting trial and sentencing and, and you're and you die because you're you're attacked or because you get a you know pneumonia or something like that, you're resuscitated, resuscitated because uh, you haven't yet faced trial and been found guilty of the uh, uh, and, and given the sentence of death. And so that death isn't uh, it's not properly a punishment yet because they haven't faced their trial and it hasn't been something they've been sentenced with and so forth. And so. You know, God is the perfect judge, yes, and he's he's omniscient, and, and he he knows when the wicked die that that's what they deserve and that that's what um, they should get. But the wicked don't, mm. and it could be argued that the wicked are raised on the final day so that they can um, have a fair trial. Now, they're not going to have any meaningful defense, right? It, right? It's not like they're going to be able to make any sort of persuasive argument, and it may be that they don't even try to. It may be that once they face the um, the thrice holy living God of all creation, they realize, no, I deserve it. I do. But until they have that trial, until they have, proverbially speaking at least, uh, until they have that fair trial, then it may not be properly just uh, to, to, to let them remain dead forever. Mm. Um, and so I think those are two of perhaps a variety of other reasons that might account for why God would do that. But again, for me, it's a matter of what does God words, what does God's word say? And even if I can't come up with a perfectly compelling, uh, you know, completely persuasive argument for why God would do it, the fact is that that's what Scripture seems to say he will do. Mm. I think that was a, a really noble uh, appeal to just kind of innate human nature. There's a sense of dignity in that. I think that's why we we do that, right? Or if uh, if if a you know if if a perpetrator of a crime is injured in committing that crime, we still send an ambulance to them again for the same reason that they would face a, a fair trial. That's right. In fact, it it even happens post-trial, right? If a person has been sentenced to death and they're in prison awaiting 
the electric chair and they die before that happens, even then we resuscitate them maybe because, um, you know, there, there's still opportunities for appeals or whatever. But the point is until the penalty is meted out by the institution that prescribes the penalty, right. then it's not justice. Mm, yeah. So, uh, you know, until they face the trial and until the punishment is, uh, until until God is one who delivers that penalty on the final day, arguably it would be unjust to simply let them remain dead forever. Um, I, so I, I just don't find that objection compelling. Mm. Very cool. Uh, Chris, I was wondering, so just kind of piggybacking off that, um, what, what would be your view? I mean, is it, is it the traditional, um, the traditional view of what happens to a person when they die while they're awaiting judgment? Does that view fall in line similar, um, to your view that, you know, the spirit is in hell or in heaven awaiting that judgment, or is there a nuance to that, that, um, just kind of, you know, thought, what's your view on, on that? Well, I'll tell you what my view is, but before I do that, let me just say that this is another example of an area in which the conditionalist community um, is diverse and, and doesn't agree. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, people like Irenaeus of Lyon and uh, contemporary conditionalists, even, even excuse me, even some on the Rethinking Hell team who are what you would call substance dualists, who think that human beings have a uh, have an immaterial soul that is separated from the body at death and continues to subsist in some sort of conscious state in the afterlife until it's reunited with the body at resurrection. And that immaterial soul, if if the person is saved, presumably would go into uh, heaven in the presence of God until it's until uh, he or she is resurrected. Whereas the immaterial soul that lost would suffer some sort of post mortem torment until they're until they're raised. The likes of which you see depicted in uh, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. But then you also have um, individuals and whole denominations like the Seventh Day Adventists and the Advent Christians who think that. Um, who think that human beings uh, don't have immaterial souls that subsist beyond death, and that when uh, when you die, you cease to be conscious of anything until you're resurrected. And that is my view, personally. Um, I'm what's, what philosophers of mind call a non-reductive physicalist, which means that I think our consciousness uh, sort of arises from or is the product of the functioning of our brains. Uh, and so your neurons fire and that gives rise to a consciousness and uh, the mind. And it's not the answer. The reason it's called non-reductive is because it's your, your mind is not merely the effect of the causes of the firing of the neurons of your brain, but it's, but it's, the relationship is reciprocal. So uh, the mind can influence the firing of the neurons in the brain. Otherwise you wouldn't have any concept of will. Um, you know, you, you would simply be a robot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what, that's what many atheists are, are, are reductive physicalists who think that we're just uh, cause and effect robots, you know, who simply respond to sim- stimuli um, uh, without any sort of freedom uh, of, of thought or, or of action. Uh, and that's why we're called non-reductive physicalists is because we don't think that. But anyway, that's, I'm, I'm going off into the weeds. <laughs> the, the, if anybody's interested in this, it's, it's a very interesting, fascinating topic in the area of philosophy of mind. And you might check mm. out a podcast series done by my friend Glenn Peoples called In Search of the Soul. Uh, but the mm. point is, is that no one does not have to agree with me on the nature of the intermediate state mm. in order to agree with me that the final state for the lost is destruction rather than immortal life forever in torment. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. No, very good. And, um, 
you know, again, just we appreciate so much uh, your willingness to come on and talk with us about this. Um, we are we are running low on time here. Uh, Want to be conscious of your time. And mm. uh, but thank you, Chris, once again, so much for coming on. Uh, just want to turn it over to you. Um, any last thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners before we do our official sign off? Well, um First of all, there's no need to thank me. Uh, you know, the pleasure and honor is all mine. I'm grateful that there are uh, ministries out there like yours that are willing to uh, expose listeners to our view uh, and to have the conversation. Because the reality is, and I don't know why this is the case, many traditionalists just won't even have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spoke about this at the 2015 Rethinking Hell conference. We were trying to find, you know, prominent defenders of the traditional view to speak at our conference and challenge us, and, and 90, 99% of them refused. Um, I've, you know, I'm a big fan, for example, of well, I don't want to give away names. I'm just saying <laughs> it means a lot to me that you guys are willing to have the conversation, and you really don't need to thank me. It's I who should thank you, and I do thank you. Um, secondly, uh, if your listeners want to. Um, if they have further questions and would like to contact me directly, I don't bite, and I love having these. <laughs> kinds of, I don't. I love having these kinds of conversations, and I'm very accessible. They can email me at Chris Date C H R I S D A T E at RethinkingHell dot com. I'm on Facebook at Facebook dot com slash Chris Date, and you know I love having these kinds of conversations. Um, I've I've I have them with people that agree with me and ones with people that disagree with me and I'm friendly and I, and uh, you know, let's sharpen iron. Let's sharpen each other's iron. Even if in the end we don't agree with each other, at least we'll better understand why we believe what we do and why we don't believe what we don't. And I think Mm. that's a conversation worth having. So I would encourage people to do that. Also, if people, um, if this episode does get published before next Friday, April 21st, uh, come out to Gateway Seminary. If you're anywhere near Ontario, California, and sit in on my talk, I'd love to uh, to have you and to field your questions afterwards. It's um, You don't have to be a member of ETS to come and, uh, and attend. You only have to be a member of ETS to present. Um, it's cheap. I think it's like $10 or something to attend. It's not bad at all. Nice. Um, so I hope people will come and listen to that. And just check out RethinkingHell.com and listen to our podcast and check out our blog and um we'd love to uh to be involved in the conversation with you guys Mm. sweet yeah and we'll definitely make sure we get all your information in the show notes so people Mm. can contact you more um more easily um and yeah just uh for our listeners to know so this podcast will be airing um tuesday uh the 18th so the 21st is when the uh when the uh, conferences, so plenty of time for people to listen to this and those who are, you know, those who are over that way would be able to uh, go and attend the conference. So, um, all right, well, we're going to go ahead and sign off now. Sean, Chris, we just rocked the Casbah. Non-Dutcher style. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Greg, what's going on, man? Hey, not much, dude. How are you? Good, dude. Just noticing this Romans poster you got. That's a pretty sweet looking poster there, man. That's huge. What is that like? Three foot by two foot or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty big, big wall here, man. I needed something to take up the space. Yeah. Uh, well, dude, I got that at Missional Wear. Dude, no way. The coolest. The coolest, man. The entire book of Romans on this poster. And it's funny to watch people come in and look at it more closely. Yeah. And say, hey, look at that closely. What do you think that is? Because, you know, some abstract art. No, look a little more closely. Whoa. Yeah, that's not a chapter. That's not a verse. It's the entire book. Dude, that is that is sweet. So you've gotten a lot of comments on that, then? A ton, man. It's a ton. It's a uh, it's a great conversation starter. It looks great, just great artwork on the wall. What about your cool shirt, man? I like that. Theology matters, dude. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you got Romans there, so you know, theology matters. Missional wear too. 
Awesome. Yeah. I'm sensing yeah. a theme. I know, right? Dude, and, you know, all the other great products they have, too. You know, their mugs, their journals. Oh, man. Their, um, you know, they have their beer mugs. They have their flasks. Yeah. All those are so great. So. Love it, man. Uh, I, as a coffee drinker, starting the day with the morning surge with Spurge. Yeah. For those cool reform people, that's shorthand for Spurgeon. Uh, very cool. Yeah, love their products, man. Awesome. So check out Mission Aware and uh, enter our promo code SUSTAIN to get an awesome discount. SUSTAIN. These go to 11.